0: I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, Oh, no, don't. You can't. Don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on. I would rather see my
1: little
2: girls die
0: now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die. Do you want me to... Welcome back.
2: Welcome to... Wait, welcome to The Left is Dead. I'm your host, Jim Carey, back with Jake Anderson. How are you doing, buddy?
0: Yo, I'm pretty good, um, I, you know?
2: I hear Portland is on fire once again.
0: No, Portland is just fine. Um, the cruel summer has oh. begun, very hot. People are, it's definitely a, a weird vibe right now, just because I think, you know, people having, you know, largely been inside for a year. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, it's going to be a crazy summer and it's, I just feel it already. Like people are, I just feel like an extra intensity in the air. People are driving crazier. There's just a, there's just a nervous energy in the air. It's going to be an interesting summer.
2: There's going to be a new virus from Bill Gates.
0: Right, yeah, or from was-
2: Melinda actually to compete with Bill Gates's
0: virus, right? Yeah, um, Bill and Melinda, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't know this, but uh, apparently, uh, Bill Gates was uh, somewhat of a, a playboy in, in his earlier days. No, no, no. he would, uh, him and his uh, coding friends would uh, hmm. have raging naked pool parties and whatnot. Those <laughs> Disgusting thing to think about, but... uh
2: Wasn't he friends with Epstein?
0: Oh, yeah. I don't know.
2: Yeah, um, I think so, bud.
0: I'm sure they rubbed elbows. I mean, Epstein... Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he knew a lot of those. Because
2: he loved there. all those dorks like Pinker and all that bullshit.
0: But I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you're gonna... You know, if you're gonna... It, you can't really cast aspersions on everyone who ever even talked to Epstein, because a- anyone who any super rich dude uh, is probably going to have, you know, had some kind of interaction with Epstein in the past 20 years. So I, I, I just feel like there's a lot of irresponsible bullshit that that comes out. Oh,
2: there's for sure. Like the, some of the shit, like the Q people say and stuff like that, where they're like the people they say are on the flight logs and stuff. Yeah. Like that's all like made up. There's like names, like people have also conflated like the little black book. And the flight logs,
0: yeah, you know,
2: uh, yeah, but yeah. Either way, uh, why don't you tell uh, our listeners what we have tonight, and we'll get. Oh yeah, we're
0: we're so we're gonna talk uh briefly with uh, our friend uh, Ford Fisher, who runs uh, News to Share, and um, this you know this it'd be interesting to get his take on you know kind of where things are at right now and his fight with uh you know online kind of deplatforming and algorithmic censorship type stuff he uh we we both kind of know him he's kind of in our ecosystem i've never met him personally but you know he's in our ecosystem of of alternative media journalists that we met through the anti media you know network um before anti media got pretty much destroyed by facebook
2: I'll say, well, let's clarify, I never, I was never at anti-media.
0: That's right, yeah. That's
2: brought up in the interview. I worked at Pontiac Tribune, and then I was at my own site, Geopolitics Alert, and then Mint Press, briefly.
0: I just kind of view, like... <laughs> but I was, of- yeah, I was in that... It's like, you know, a Free Thought Project, anti-media... Uh, a lot of these groups that simultaneously you know, police accountability stuff, a lot of these groups and Facebook pages and websites that kind of simultaneously got, you know, uh, destroyed by by the Facebook purge. And then uh, were-
2: yeah, 2016, we met at the height, like right yeah. before everything fell apart in 2016. Yeah, it's weird
0: to think that that was four years ago. Man. That
2: was during the primary when I met you in California.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So yeah, in those four years, everything the landscape is totally different, totally. except for Ford. So, yeah,
0: Ford is one of the few people. I mean, because even the Mind Unleashed is is in trouble now. I I was writing for them for a while, and they they had been one of the uh, the few websites with a right, huge, yeah, they
2: slipped uh, away kind of
0: audience a huge alternative media presence actually probably the biggest one they're they're less political than a lot of these groups and i think they they tried to be less controversial but at the end of the day it sounds like facebook is now kind of coming after them limiting majorly limiting their reach as well now so it's, it's it's just fucked up because facebook kind of grew on the backs of creating these these ecosystems of, you know, of small media businesses that, that, you know, obviously they were using Facebook to grow, but Facebook in turn grew because of them. And then as soon as they were scared of regulation, um, they just threw everyone under the bus and said to hell with you, to hell with all these years of work you put in, growing your audience. We're just going to completely dismantle you now. And it's just, it's pretty messed up. And uh, Ford is a, you know, a positive case example because he seems to have won his battle with social media and he it seems like news to share is flourishing right
2: now well they're still going on which we get into but yeah so let's go into the interview and we'll be back on the other side okay, All right, okay well, just, come on hey who's that sexy news guy it's ford, ford. yes it's ford. ford and he's on the channel Whatever, we make it on news, right? <laughs> We're going to make it on
1: the TV.
0: All right. Welcome back to uh, The Left is Dead. And our guest today is uh, a, a pretty uh, you know, recognizable figure in the alternative media landscape. He's, he's, he's uh, the proprietor of News to Share. And he's been around the scene, the alternative media scene, for a long time as a, as a video journalist. Um I kind of worked indirectly with him through the anti-media networks. I think Jim did too. And um, so we're going to, we're leading off with him today. And uh, Ford, my first question for you actually is if you could just kind of uh, tell us how you got into the alternative, how did you get into media in the first place? And then how did you decide you wanted to go for the alternative angle of that. Like, did you think there was something missing or did you want to contribute in some special way?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I very originally like started with media. Actually, working at my local cable station. I grew up in a small rural town of eight thousand people, and I worked at uh, a local cable station, uh, filming like government meetings. And it was funny that even on that scale, um, you know, like with things like the library board or whatever, these kind of nonpartisan uh, local committees. Like sometimes they would even be like, you know, oh, we don't like we don't want to be filmed tonight. Do we have to have a camera? You know, well actually it's a public meeting, you have to let me. So um, so it's interesting, I kind of got into that space in a way very early on, but at the time I wanted to be more like a fiction filmmaker uh, or something like that kind of as my career. Um, when I went to American University here in Washington DC, um, I ended up sort of falling into the news uh, space. I worked, collaborated with other at the time college students and actually on the, basically the very first kind of national type story that I did, uh, which was at Obama's second inauguration, um, at the time myself and friends were basically just sending footage to CNN to see if we could get our name on the news. And so my very first time uh, contributing a package there, it made it to the homepage of CNN on the day that Obama was inaugurated for the second time. So I kind of realized, I guess, very quickly that uh, you know anybody with a camera can basically make media that matters. And so ultimately, we realized rather than just sending our stuff to networks to see our name on the news, let's actually sort of make our own thing. Um, And so by creating myself and uh, the co-founder, Trey Yinks, who actually now works at Fox News, but um, him and I created News to Share as a platform to uh, cover activism in an independent and raw footage way. And we didn't want to have any kind of partisanship. We didn't want to be attached to any political ideology. we had a third person, Alejandro Alvarez, who I still work with um, quite a bit. Uh, and across the three of us, we basically had three different personal political ideologies. So, um, you know, it, we we were able to be kind of a check and balance at the beginning of uh, what, we, what we were doing and um, try to make something really independent. And so myself now being the runner of uh, News to Share and with, you know, a, a considerably larger following than when we started, I kind of try to continue that. Virtue, basically, with the idea being of live streaming events beginning to end, and putting out raw footage summaries of it afterwards. That you have the live stream that you can fall back on to see the context uh, of every single shot. And I also license to the mainstream media. And so my my the thing that this is the solution to, which I guess was the heart of your question, um, is that the problem, the thing that I don't like about the mainstream media, is that in the last decade, especially. Um, It's become super, super commentary driven where, you know, all of CNN is now what used to be Crossfire. Right. And, you know, Fox News, um, you know, they they do try to like distinguish their, you know, news programming from their peer opinion programming. But I think that with a few exceptions, uh, for the most part, Fox News is very partisan. For the most part, MSNBC is very Mm -hmm. partisan. And the other problem that that presents is that not only are they not presenting news because they're presenting, you know, sort of partisan politics and kind of playing this, you know, supposed left versus right game, but it also has a very confined like Overton window of of what are we actually debating, right? So in the context of the activists that I cover, the Democrats and the Republicans probably don't think that differently from each other as compared to when I go interview an anarchist or a communist uh, or a libertarian or whatever, uh, somebody on the far right for that matter, right? All of these people have, you know, very divergent political opinions. And I think it's really important to see what ideologies are bringing people out on the streets. What do people think strongly enough to go out on the streets and in some cases become violent uh, over them. And I think the mainstream media for the most part just is very reductionist about that and doesn't spend a whole lot of time actually talking to the people on the ground and and showing what's going on.
2: They Well, they're going out because they love Gutfeld and they said that's a good show on Fox.
1: Oh yeah, right. (laughs) But I saw a couple segments of that, and it just seemed so deadpan. Like (laughs) what it seemed like it needed was like a laugh track, right? Like so, have you ever seen like a like a TV show like um, Big Bang Theory? Yeah, without the laugh
2: track. Without the laugh
1: track. I want the little bit of the Gutfeld show that I saw. Like it, it seemed kind of like that.
2: What Gutfeld (laughs) needs is jokes, but. <laughs> yeah. Beyond that, though, no, that's one thing. Is like I've you know I've met you, and I most often see you outside of APAC, the uh, the Israeli lobby. I think that's our annual run in with each other, where I am oh, not partisan. True. um I am out there discussing my feelings with like the Israeli lobbyists, and Ford is. It is cool because I see you, and it's funny you get accused of being like a fascist and a communist, and. I believe Chris Cantwell has called you Jewish. You know, <laughs> you get accused of all these things. 4chan is
1: very convinced that I'm
2: Jewish. <laughs> they, well, everyone is. Every, everyone is Jewish. Yeah, yeah everyone you know, is the 4chan. The media but group. that's the most interesting thing is like, you. how do you manage to get access? Like for all the like vitriol online, how do you manage to get access to both sides of these things? So close because, you know, you still look like a media figure. You identify as media, you know, and it's a rough time for them. And, like, the accusations come because you get this close footage of these events. So right, what right. makes you, you know, this trust, you know, what makes you trustworthy? for these people? We talk to weirdos, too. So what makes you trustworthy uh-huh. to your weirdos?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think that the thing that any activist sees who actually, like, watches my work is, you know, even if people, the, the usual criticisms are that I film the other side and that side shouldn't be heard because their view is dangerous. Right. That's the usual right. like perspective. That's the usual criticism. So I activism generally is, is a little bit more of a left-wing um, tactic, like the, the ideal of physically physically going out on the street to talk about something. So I, I would say that I probably film more leftist events than right-wing ones. Um, but, but I certainly do both. And I try to do both with the same style and so something that's never happened is I've, I've basically never been accused by someone at an event of, you know, I film them and then they say, the way that you published that wasn't accurate. That, that accusation virtually never happens. The accusation usually is, you know, why do you also film that side? Because their thing is bad, right? right. Um, you know, so I've seen like, I, this actually happened when on the, uh, at the second million MAGA march there was a a very right-wing live streamer named, uh, he goes by the name Baked Alaska. And I guess he pointed the camera at me and then some of his commenters knew who I was. He seemed not to recognize me. But then he came up to me just because his commenters were like, is that Ford Fisher? Is that Ford Fisher? And he goes, he like looks around and he's like, is that Ford Fisher? And then when he came over to me, he starts reading the comments out loud. And one of them goes, one of them apparently wrote something like his videos are good, but he's a commie simp. It's like so. There, presumably, that person is claiming that I'm a commie simp because I've filmed leftists, but I was literally there filming a right wing event, like the same way that I filmed leftists. Anyway, my point is. I think that the the trust, the ability of me to go out to events and film them is basically derived on the fact that most people are fundamentally proud of what they are going out on the street to talk about, right? If you're going out on the street and, t- and saying your piece about some political issue, uh, it is because you believe in it and you believe in it enough to put your body and face out there in order to advocate for it. And so if somebody is aware that my footage basically just shows them doing that exactly the way they're doing it, that that pride is probably transferred onto the video. I don't think most people are happy about what they do, and then they think that they don't look good on film. Um, yeah. At its heart, I think that that's probably the main reason why people who actually know me, um, why that's the case. I think it's probably helpful that my... Um, you know, while I I wear a congressional press credential like anyone else in DC, but there's not the predisposed notion that someone might have if they looked at that credential and it said Fox News or MSNBC, people would have an assumption that you have one political side or the other. One one thing that I've seen that I think is unfortunate is like I've seen um, Fox 5 reporters, local Fox station reporters being kicked out of uh, social justice events on the assumption that, well, your parent company is Fox, you must be against us in some way. And that I've that generally has not been correct, but people just based on what the outlet is, you know, want them away. I, I don't, for the most part, have that issue. People on Twitter might, you know, bitch about me, uh, you know, writing about or filming the person who they don't want me to be doing. Uh, but I don't, but on the ground, I don't think that uh, it's been that much of a problem.
0: So the 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 main question I have for you, and I want to, ask it now so that we have, you know, time to flesh it out. And it's one that I think is probably the biggest, one of the biggest questions. And I'll, I'll see how important it is to you. I, I'm pretty sure it is a big deal. And and of course, this is this landscape of uh, kind of algorithmic censorship, deep platforming demonetizing that has become such a massive, um, you know, paradigm shift in uh internet uh, alternative media journalism. Me and Jim saw it firsthand, of course, when working for anti-media, we basically saw that entire operation get completely, you know, shut down in the period of months because of this. And I know you've seen it firsthand as well, as someone who, uh, you know, you, you have monetized mm-hmm. content through YouTube. And I know I'm constantly seeing you post about struggles that you go through, and it seems like you deal with it in a pretty professional way. Yeah. Um, and then so tell us about that. And then I guess the, the second parter to that would be, um, we see a lot, particularly among uh, right wing activists arguing that there is uh, arguing that this is censorship. Now, of course, uh, 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 the normal kind of libertarian argument against that would be, well, look, there's not a constitutional right for a, uh, a, a private company's proprietary algorithm to amplify your voice. That is not a constitutional right. So we can't argue that that's necessarily a violation of free speech. Um, However, you're caught in the middle of that, because uh, even though I'm pretty sure you agree with that, you at the same time are seeing these kind of hybridized state, you know, private sector companies working together to try and control discourse sometimes. So how do you navigate that? And how has it affected you?
1: Yeah, I mean, so there there was a lot in that question. All of it is super interesting, and I could say like I could write an entire book. We could talk like three hours about all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Let me try to. uh, So I think I'll answer the
0: big question. Yeah, yeah. I
1: think I'll answer the second part first, which was essentially on the on the philosophy of deplatforming as it relates to like law and constitutionality. So so right now it is entirely legal. There there's basically no legal argument. Um, that says that it is illegal to, for, for a platform to sort of remove people, right? So YouTube is a private company, Facebook's a private company, Twitter's a private company, they can set up whatever terms of service they want, um, you know, and most of them actually have in their terms of service something to the effect of, you know, beyond all of the actual rules, things like we reserve the right to take down anything for any reason, YouTube's actually says something to the effect of. Um, we can take down anything that we believe in like will in the long run compromise profitability. And Facebook's I, like, if I remember correctly, it has something to the effect of, we can take down anything based on the viewpoint that failing to do so would subject us to further regulation. Like Facebook basically says, we, we censor because we're scared we'll get censored if we don't censor. Um, so At the end of the day though, yeah, the first amendment clearly applies to government platforms and not um, private ones. I personally, as someone who, I try not to do political advocacy of any kind, but as someone who is uh, in the world of of journalism, I tend to consider myself sort of a free speech activist. I tend to be anti-censorship. And so I, I do spend a lot of time talking about the, the problems, the inequities, uh, the failures that come with um, big tech doing this sort of thing. And I tend to emphasize that I think that people in the mainstream media, and it's permeated into politics or maybe it's chicken and egg. I mean it could be you know a causal relationship that goes either way. But that there's a view that it only happens to like the political right wing. And I think that's just obviously not true. Like in in my view, it seems that big tech censorship kind of affects anybody outside of the center, the American center left to the American center right. Like it's kind of the the there's an acceptable overton window of politics. And then anybody outside of that um, can be removed. Purges from Facebook have included people with police accountability pages, anti-war pages, uh, drug legalized pro drug legalization. Israel, <clears throat> Israel is a big one. I mean, during the demonetization wave in 2019, YouTube demonetized me for. So, I guess this will go into my personal, um, you know, situation. My first really big issue with one of these things was it, I was demonetized my entire channel in 2019 during a wave of what people called the Vox adpocalypse. And I don't want to go into that because it'll take a long time, but there there was a bit of a controversy and YouTube responded to it by punishing a thousand different accounts and changing their terms of service and saying that that was the result. This was and like so a
2: Tucker th- time. This was uh,
1: Carlos Maza versus um, the Canadian right winger, Stephen Crowder. Okay. okay. Um, but anyhow, they, they demonetized a thousand channels and mine was among them. And it took seven months of just pure advocacy. Rolling Stone wrote about it, ABC wrote about it, Ars Technica wrote about it, which is a pretty, to people who don't know, it's a pretty solid like tech magazine, MIT Technology Review wrote about it. Um, so I was able to speak to a lot of people to do advocacy on this. And it took seven months before YouTube uh, apologized and reversed it. But something I learned during that time actually was that you know there's a, there's a platform There's a a guy (laughs) who basically has made a technology where he's automatically testing what words are decentivized on YouTube based on uploading videos with nothing, just like a black square, you know, no content, but then tags to see which tags cause the video to be demonetized. And Palestine was a keyword that is an auto demonetization. Um, And so, you know, at that time, I actually, because after learning that I was thinking, you know, basically, how did this happen to me? Um, and it turned out, you know, I I've had 70 at that point, I had had 70 of my thousand YouTube videos, roughly 7% of my YouTube videos pertain to Palestinian activism. And so, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that that solely was responsible for YouTube's error, but, uh, it's, but, but clearly there are certain subjects that they want to disincentivize. Um, and it's important to realize that it can have a dampening effect on the conversation even when they don't do things that are outright censorship, right? Having certain topics be ones that you can make money off of, sure. but anything you say about Palestine is not gonna make money. It's disincentivizing people from, from literally using uh, the word.
0: Right, yeah, so good I think point. Like- not just about censorship, but, but crafting, uh, crafting a narrative by the sin of omission sometimes. Yeah. Right.
1: I, I sometimes refer to this as um, soft censorship. The, the other thing YouTube actually was saying, as if it was like a really positive thing, was they were describing how in their fight against disinformation, that at that same time, in 2019, they said, we've, you know, we've manu- we've changed our algorithm so that, um, you know, even content that's not taken down, we've cut it down to about 30% of the viewership, and we've siphoned that viewership toward reputable news sources, and what they mean is Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, on YouTube, and exactly as i was demonetized my a year later right so year over year i continued doing the exact same content but my viewership in the year following that june 2019 demonetization it it dropped 72% so it was it almost exactly to the percentage clearly they designated my work which is just raw footage it's not it's clearly not wrong the work um, but they clearly are you know siphoning views off to the mainstream media
2: and another thing I noticed, too, is like the way they do this is a lot of the right wing things they take off. You know, you get why they'd want to do it. But at the same time, when they take off things like, let's say, pa- Palestine, for example, where you yep. end up having to go to speak on Palestine or to have like a monetized platform on Palestine. Do you think there's like a risk that you just end up on like a further radical platform anyway and the liberal measures and it's not, it's this kind of neoliberal measure by, like you said, tech companies pre-censoring to avoid any regulation. Do you think this just like causes these people to just be cordoned off more, and people who have legitimate questions and legitimate complaints end up falling into more ridiculous things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard both sides of that argument, and so I'm not I'm not exactly sure where I fall on it because there's a question of like, you know, you could probably quantify that with data, right? But I don't right. think such a study exists yet. So on the one hand, I've heard it suggested that you kick people off of a platform, and then they're going to end up on some place like Gab or something or Parler, and then yeah. and then that's going to further radicalize them. Um, You know, on, on the other hand, people say, well, if you take away somebody's, you know, large platform, if you, if you remove Milo Yiannopoulos from Facebook, you know, you've got 2 million fewer people who are going to see his stuff. And even if he moves to those other platforms, you're, you're limiting his reach. Ergo, like net extremism is decreased. Um, I'm honestly not sure. I think it's, I think it's hard to say which of those factors is stronger. I certainly think that it probably hurts those people who are doing it, um, financially to some extent. Um, but I think that the main problem with doing it, especially in some in with journalism, right <laughs> like is is that you just get so many false positives on on what is right. extremism. So just for example, um, YouTube has generally speaking, they have you know policies against certain types of topics, you know threatening language, you know whatever. Um, things that in a nutshell, in a, in a, put in a simple way basically makes sense with it in mind that they have what they call an ESDA exception. Educational, scientific, documentary, or artistic are the four things that they look at as exceptions to most of their rules. For example, hate speech or election disinformation or whatever. So for example, me filming uh, somebody talking about, um, you know, they, they say, you know, a certain, certain type of people are bad. And if someone was to just take a webcam video where they, they say, you know, this type of person is bad and they make a generalized statement about a population, they've committed kind of hate speech and therefore their video is taken down if I record it to document that the thing is happening for documentary and educational purposes, it's different, right? So this is the difference between a Nazi posting a Hitler video and you know a historian posting a Hitler video. The problem is that YouTube relies on computers to figure this stuff out and they don't know the difference. And as a gigantic corporation, their sort of bureaucracy doesn't look at the difference. So what they removed, YouTube no longer acknowledges the ESDA exception on two topics. COVID disinformation, and election disinformation. And so the problem that I've dealt with that has, removed, that has caused the removal of six videos, a demonetization that only got fixed once the mainstream media talked about it again, uh, as well as a week-long suspension from YouTube, was were claims of election disinformation on my channel. But none of it was stuff that I said. The very first video that was removed, and which caused me to be demonetized, was My footage, it was a 70-minute video of Trump's speech on January 6th. The same footage is used in a BBC documentary. Um, Moments that I recorded are referenced in the impeachment. Other aspects of my footage were twice presented during the actual impeachment trial against President Trump. Um, So clearly, this is footage of an extremely historic moment, right? Trump was incited. uh, Trump was incited. Trump was in. Indicted, (laughs) Trump was impeached for allegedly inciting a riot. I filmed complete 70 minute beginning to end video of the people that he was allegedly inciting at the exact moment that he allegedly incited them. And YouTube took it down because Trump says the election was stolen, right? And so the problem is obviously my video is not election disinformation. It's documentation of a specific moment in history that's critically important, but they have these dense sort of robotic views of. What went on? I'll get. I know that we don't have that much time, but I just wanted as one other quick example. The one that got me suspended on YouTube was there was a religious hate group, sort of, sort of like um, Westboro Baptist Church, holding up you know signs, God hates you know gay people and all that kind of stuff, and people were confronting them. And out of my eight minute video, the thing that got me suspended from YouTube for a week and the video taken down was that there was one shirtless guy on the street and he screamed the words, "Correct your hate, correct your hate, correct your hate." I still believe the election was stolen, but you, sir, are preaching the wrong form of Christianity. Shame on you. That's what he said. I've watched it so many times because of having to analyze this and argue with YouTube about it. But um, the fact that he said, I still believe the election was stolen, but you are preaching the wrong form of Christianity... Clearly, this is not a video about election disinformation. Clearly, my eight-minute video detailing people confronting a hate group isn't about no. the election. But that one sentence, YouTube descri- explained to me, you can only show someone saying even that fragment of a sentence if you have a superseding, countervailing view. Meaning, I can only do that if I have a piece of text under it that says, uh, you know, this guy is wrong and you should look at a reputable source like whatever. Or if I did an intro at the beginning, like someone's going to say something and I just want you to know it's not quite right. And that's their expectation. Um, And so I, I do think that that's a very dangerous standard, especially when it's enforced by robots.
2: No, I think that, yeah, I've been complaining about this a lot recently is like the way social media and all media really just treats you like a baby. The way YouTube has to have like disclaimers, every like COVID meme has like vaccine information under it. Twitter has like, oh, this is false information about the election under like posts by nobodies, you know, like this, this babyification of everything is wild. And the fact is that it's it's really just meant to punish creators that they don't like because they do it to not only and not only you, you because you're like a competition to the uh, mainstream media, you're recording the same exact things as them but also just alternative media in general. That's not like you said, within the acceptable Overton window. So it's just become like, we'll treat you like a baby and tell you what's correct to watch and what's incorrect. You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like algorithmic, uh, like you no, I don't think anybody is entitled to YouTube helping them build an audience like algorithmic suggestions and things right. like that, like I, I find it frustrating that they, like we said, you know, sort of incentivize certain stuff, disincentivize certain stuff. You know, they they direct my viewers to CNN instead of me when they search for something that the keywords would drive them to me if, you know, if it was indifferent. Um, but the, but I, I think that that's fundamentally... Not as dangerous as the more dangerous thing is when they actually re- like remove the content, right? The actual deletion that you can't even post something and then share it, you know, back to your friends or back to your own yeah. audience on your own platforms and so forth.
2: Oh, well, that's becoming more common too, but yeah, we'll, we're going to have to let you go here though. So thank you for doing this with us, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh,
0: Uh, congratulations on on fighting, uh, you know, and and keeping your your channel up, uh, you know? Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing I'll, let me give a piece of advice to anybody who's listening to this, because they're interested in, you know, political censorship and so forth. Firstly, really document the stuff that happens to you, right? If your video is deleted, right, make sure that you have backups of stuff. And so you can, you know, post it somewhere else and say, I was deleted, this is the email I got for this video. You know, watch it and see if that actually seems like a valid takedown reason. Um, but the other thing is leverage your audience against those companies. So when when I was deleted from Facebook um, in September, and I, I mean, my entire Facebook was removed um, without any explanation whatsoever. Um, I tweeted about it and, after getting like basically a viral tweet thread, uh, Facebook reached out and apologized the next day, which I'm, I'm very grateful Facebook fixed it quickly. Um, you know, Twitter, uh, I haven't had quite as much issues with, but I did advocate for myself for three months after they labeled my entire profile as uh, caution, this may contain sensitive <laughs> images. Um, it took me three months of basically bitching about that before it magically restored itself. And YouTube, which is the one that I probably had the most trouble with, I've been demonetized twice. I've had my videos removed, six of my videos removed in last year. Um, But both of the times with the demonetization, I didn't win by really appealing to their sense of rightness, right? It wasn't me like messaging YouTube and just saying, "Can you please fix this? I'd really like that." It was speaking out, like use your voice, right? I managed to get news outlets both times to write about it. I managed to make popular. Uh, Twitter threads about it, where I was tagging YouTube, I was telling people, you know, tag YouTube and ask them to fix this, that kind of thing speaks out, because at the end of the day, these are companies, and they're making their decisions, ultimately, according to what is going to be profitable for them. And so with a profit motive in mind, you have to convince them that uncensoring you or not censoring you in the first place is actually more profitable than doing so. And in order to do that, you
2: really have to get people to rally behind you. Well, that's why we only post on Frank we're with mike Lindell. Is that? that's mike lindell's site oh, we're, I <laughs> only, we're only available on hey, frank let me
0: get a, a just a quick 30 second take from you because you're sure. someone who you, you you've had your you have your finger on the pulse uh, you're a, a rare journalist that is uh, very much embedded in both sides of of this you know very divided country uh, possibly the most divided we've ever seen with radicalism and extremism increasingly turning violent on both sides the extreme left and the extreme right causing many people to wonder like are we kind of hurtling toward inevitably you know increasingly asymmetric civil war type situations as someone who has been on the ground and knows kind of the pulse of what's going on out there in these protest movements and whatnot do you you worry that we're headed towards something like that? Um, you know, I think it depends on kind of
1: what happens over the next several years. Um, I think that in in some ways the situation on January sixth felt like the natural conclusion of a lot of those conflicts that happened over four years. There was really a rising um, tension. Um, I think at the very beginning, uh, Charlottesville felt like that kind of explosion, like people sort of seeing it in front of their, their own eyes. Um, but that had a very The the actual effect, though, that that had on the alt-right was that they basically fell apart. They got sued and arrested kind of into oblivion. And now the alt-right is, you know, it still exists for sure. And racist ideas still exist for sure. But they're not um, nearly as powerful as they were, you know, when they were able to organize a thousand people to to march on a small town. Um, The broader MAGA movement right now, I think, is going through a sort of parallel reckoning where... You know, whereas this is not something I heard super often before January 6, since January 6, um, virtually every like militia Trump supporter, you know, basically people who were involved at the Capitol or people who are members of militia groups anywhere ha- are almost universally saying that they have been getting FBI visits. And that has definitely had a dampening effect on their organizing, as has the fact that you know uh, we're coming up on 500 participants in January 6th um, who faced criminal charges. And so I think for right now, right-wing street political organizing <clears throat> has certainly decreased. And while the left, I th- and when I say the left, I don't mean I don't mean Democrats. I don't even mean Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders. I mean I mean the actual. Sp- you know, leftists who are, you know, ideologically leftist enough to not affiliate in any way with the Democratic Party, while they are not happy with Joe Biden and certainly continue to protest the policies of Biden, um, they are not um, quite as, I think, inspired or or terrified by, you know, having Trump in office. Biden is clearly an improvement, I think, from their perspective. And so on both sides, I think there's a bit of a de-escalation for right now um and so the question is what could possibly re reinf- it right so you're saying you know what as we look at a trajectory what could kind of drive things um back i i don't want to be too predictive and kind of like offer opinion but i will say that uh former president trump Trump's
0: has now implied
1: on a couple of occasions that he might run in 2024 yes. um I think it's unclear whether he would say something like that to perhaps keep the media attention on him um but you know i i, I would leave it to historians and uh, others to say did president trump really enjoy being the president enough to really want to do it again um I, i'm not sure right i i'm sure that he didn't want to lose the election but um it's hard for me to see uh, the guy be retired for four years and then decide that he wants to do it all over. Ooh. But I think that if if Trump, if Trump does win though, right? His current approval ratings in the Republican party are high. I think he would have a very considerable chance of being nominated again. And that would leave two scenarios. Either President Trump is the president of the United States again, or uh, President Trump would lose the election again. We know what happened when Trump was the president. We also know what happened when Trump lost the presidency. And right. so, uh, you know, I think that if, if Trump become, if Trump does run again, I, I think that it will drastically reinflame things, but uh, it remains to be seen whether he'll actually run or whether he would just endorse somebody like Ron DeSantis or something like that.
2: We all need him back, everyone. We all want him back, at left uh, and right. We all need him. Come well, back, let him I, on I, Twitter. Speak.
1: speak
0: for yourself, my God. Yeah. Let him on Twitter
2: <laughs> at least, give me something. Put Biden on
0: TV at least then. Well, Ford, thanks for coming on, man. We're, we're a fan of yours. And uh, thanks for your your thoughts on this stuff. Yeah, you for bet. sure. It's been fun talking to you.
2: Thank you. And everybody, yeah, make sure to follow News to Share on Twitter, Facebook, and every YouTube. Obviously, support him on YouTube. And he definitely puts out some of the best raw footage of major things going on really across the country at the drop of a hat. So it's real impressive. It's always really good. Thanks for coming on, man. You bet. Thanks for having me.
1: don't matter if you're black or white there's a difference between wrong and right it's written down for all to read that's the u.s constitution it's all you need all
0: right uh there we go that was ford fisher of news to share and uh uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to him uh, again and with a little bit more time. I'd, I'd definitely like to go more into the so-called uh, algorithmic censorship angle of this, because like he said, he has a lot more to say about it. I, frankly, I'd like to ask him more about what his experience with you know, radicalism on the streets was like during the Trump years, especially. I'm sure he has a lot to say on that, but Uh, For just a temporary conversation, uh, it was interesting to hear kind of some of the close-up details of his battle with with YouTube.
2: Yeah, there's also plenty of like very particular things that I'd like to hear him uh, discuss. There's been a lot of instances of his footage used as evidence, which he, he touched on but that's been going on since like at least unite the right and stuff. And I would like to talk to him more about that angle at some point too, you know, cause it's funny. He, he ends up so close to the action so often that his footage can often be found as like evidence in criminal cases, you know, I'm sure yeah. some of it will for these people who participated in January 6th, you know?
0: Oh yeah. And, and at a lot of these, you know like pro- he said it was in the in the impeachment trial i mean and and at these protests you know whether it's antifa or or pro boys or any of the groups uh you know yeah he, he's he's captured a lot of crimes on camera you know
2: yeah it's very interesting he should have been there when that guy the QAnon guy shot the gambino crime boss
0: yeah but um and and that's uh, another thing i would You know, kind of want to press him further on is like I I doubt he's going to go too far into this, but you know, when we're when we're comparing, say, Antifa eh, or or Antifa, however, I don't. How do you how do what's the right way to say this?
2: I don't pronounce it, so it's on you, brother.
0: All right. Well, anyway, there there's always this question of false equivalency, and of course, us being on the left, we are prone to think. I mean. In my opinion, there's just simply no equivalency between the hard left and the hard right. The hard right, to me, first of all, the radical right has been responsible for for virtually like 99.99% of of, of domestic terror attacks since you know 2000 a- after 9/11. And and, and uh, you know if you but just so say, they say extreme white nationalists, ethno statists terrorists uh just it's just a fact um there are virtually no left-wing radical murders and there.
2: let me ask you this though let me ask you about this fact sir sir is it possible that this antifa could be dressed as a patriot and then do a crime
0: anything's possible dude but there's no evidence for it so i don't know why we would discuss it but
2: uh because it's being discussed it's out there
0: well anything can be discussed. i didn't you start have to present actual evidence for something before it can be taken seriously and there's do i i'm talking about the, va- the the vast number of of hardcore extremists who have written manifestos and then went out and killed people i mean we're talking I'm, I'm i'm stating something that is literally acknowledged by the fbi the yeah i know even, i'm even just fucking To me, what I'm saying is there is no equivalency between radical left movement and the radical right. The radical right is just, objectively speaking, more dangerous. And so, you know, but then again, I mean, I have a bias on this. I think my bias is very much supported by the facts, but it it would have been nice. It'd be nice to, you know, hear what Ford thinks about that, Mm -hmm.
2: I'll say the right is much more focused on violence. That is the focus at the end of the day. Even like Q, which we talk about so much, it's much of like an incoherent dumb shit idea as it is, it's still like the idea of just like violence and punishment. You know what I mean? Oh,
0: sure. Yeah. Q which is-, is
2: like, that is like the right-wing fantasy. That's always like, even the people who it's like, just the fantasy of a home invader is like the right wing fantasy, just let me kill oh, someone. Yeah.
0: Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, you know? I mean even the most self-proclaimed modest QAnon advocates like our, our friend Martin, even he who who sounds so mm-hmm. humble and modest when he speaks, he is a hardcore proponent of extrajudicial executions for yeah. for, sedition, for sedition and he- and and uh and what what is it? Uh, treason. Treason. The difference
2: between him is he wants like, you know, Donald Trump to do it and like a, a neo-Nazi militia wants to well, they are the ones willing to do so themselves. So yeah, obviously there's a difference yeah. between that and like food, not bombs.
0: And, and yeah, and Martin know? says there's a difference. It's not extrajudicial because he's talking about military law. But anyway, your point yeah. your point is right, which is the right is very much focused on violent solutions, and that 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 stands historically as well.
2: Yeah. No I, shit. You know, yeah. Either way, I don't know. We'll definitely have to have them back. I'm getting distracted now, so I'm gonna end this episode. All right. All right, dude. That went well. All right, peace and love, brother. We'll be back again, right? We got a couple more guests. We're gonna have Canada talk coming up. Sounds some exciting. point, it, You know what, it is exciting And somebody from Arkansas uh, Can appreciate that But <laughs> As somebody from Portland Maybe you should learn to appreciate it Because they're your neighbors to the north
0: And as a two-in-one Arkansan and Portlandian I can both appreciate it And be bored by it Ooh no. Alright,
2: oh All Canada right. You sexy bitch All right, follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Jake will be tweeting the latest episodes and keeping up on the Twitter. And Instagram, and I don't know, check us out everywhere. You know where to find us and find our Discord. And we will talk to you again soon. Good night, Jake.
0: Good night, Jim Jimmy.
2: Fuck you.